This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Busy night last night in American politics for the announcement that many people had been waiting all week for. And if you thought it might change as a result of what happened in the midterms, it did not. Yes, Donald Trump is running for president again. And our Global News Washington correspondent, Reggie Giacchini, is with us this morning. So, Reggie, it sounds like even though some people were trying to talk him out of this, he went right ahead and did it. He did go right ahead uh, and and make that announcement, uh, and he followed a playbook that he has been using since 2016, talking about how he sees America as a failed nation, as a nation that is crumbling because of policies uh, that he did not put in place. Uh, he, you know, was was bringing up kind of exaggerated moments and events from his presidency to say how that is going to kind of you know help his presidency should he win uh, in 2024. There were a lot of similar words and statements to what we have heard uh, in the past. There wasn't a lot of here's what we are going to do to fix it. We also didn't hear any kind of direct attacks on members of the GOP that could find themselves as political opponents. Yeah, that seems interesting considering that there had been some hint of that over the last week that maybe he might take a shot at Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, who certainly seemed to take a shot at him. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, look, the Republicans are going to start firing back at Donald Trump because he's the high profile first person uh, through the gate. But at the end of the day, there is a reality that is kind of following directly behind Donald Trump. Number one, the track record in the midterms for him and for his candidates was not good, despite the fact that he kind of fudged the numbers a little bit by saying that, you know, the losses weren't his fault or people didn't focus on the wins, even though some of those wins were from back in the primary. But number two, there is polling that's been conducted for some of those key early states when it comes to the election, Ohio, New Hampshire, Florida, and all of them have someone like Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida plus 15 or plus 20 over Trump. Uh, and, you know, simply invoking those kinds of numbers or, or kind of an attack on Ron DeSantis would result in immediate backlash, not just from DeSantis, but possibly from outlets like the media and mm -hmm. from people within the GOP. But doesn't, isn't he not automatically the front runner at this point, though, because he, he still has a huge number of people who would vote for him? Sure, the base is there, but we also have to remember the base didn't turn out the way that he wanted the base to turn out. And whether that's because he wasn't on the ticket or whether it's because, you know, there were candidates that were flawed, you know, that's something that we have to see in 2024. Midterms and generals are very different. And again, you're right, in 2016, uh, we had people in the, the Republican Party that were very anti and uh, against Donald Trump. And then when he was the nominee, ultimately all of them right. kind of stood behind him. This is a bit more of a fractured Republican Party now. Yes. Yes, Trumpism has uh, has infiltrated a little more. There are more election deniers uh, that have made their way into Congress. But there are also still staunch conservatives that are saying, look, Trumpism is not the way forward for this. And if, you know, it's whether it's, uh, you know, Mike Pence or, or Liz Cheney or even someone like Ron DeSantis, who's a little bit Trump, but also at the same time, a little bit Trump light. Uh, there are people who are garnering some 
of that base's attention that could be enough to draw it away from Donald Trump. Okay, so then what happened? Also, I noticed how different this announcement was versus when he first ran back in 2016, right? Almost like the complete opposite of that announcement. Well, yeah, I mean, look, Donald Trump in a campaign stump uh, and speech is a little more energetic, but he was also sticking to script this time around. And when he reads off the teleprompter, he is a little more of the kind of political style Donald Trump and not that rally style uh, Donald Trump. Uh, But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, he came out, he did what he needed to do. He's getting the headlines today, whether they are negative or positive. This feeds into that Trump narrative and that Trump ego. Uh, He has the world talking about him, especially amidst other crises going on. This is precisely where he wants to be. Okay, so that's uh, next still to come. Now, do we think that we'll hear about other people entering in the near future or will people like Ron DeSantis maybe hold off until the new year? I mean, look, anybody could could jump into the race at any time. Uh, it's been danced around by the former vice president and by uh-huh. uh, by the governor of Florida, uh, you know, that they may enter sometime soon. They may kind of test these waters a bit with with comments and see what plays forward. Uh, but ultimately, you know, Donald Trump has that spotlight right now. The GOP could hope that maybe that light starts to flicker and somebody else comes in. I think there is also uh, that kind of uh, question to what is the White House going to do? What are the Democrats going to do? Are we going to hear an announcement from Joe Biden and really kind of set up that 2020 race all over again for 2024? The White House says they have a plan to how to deal with Trump for the next two years, including how they intend to attack his legacy and his history. Uh, but, you know, whatever the Republicans do, whether the, whatever the Democrats do, they are now in overdrive working to try and get something rolling. They're also uh, a little bit distracted, too, aren't they? Because there's leadership questions in terms of the House of Representatives and the Senate right now. And those are some interesting battles. Sure. Uh, in the House, it looks like Kevin McCarthy is going to ultimately end up becoming uh, the, the the speaker, taking the gavel away from Nancy Pelosi. There was a closed-door vote yesterday. He did seem to get the majority of the votes, but uh, you know, by the time this goes to a full open vote in the House in January, that becomes a different question. Is he going to get the 218 votes from the Republicans that he needs, or are we going to see something, you know, a little bit of a curveball where Democrats have threatened that they may throw someone like Liz Cheney up for Speaker of the House and try to pull over some of those moderate Republicans, maybe in, you know, putting somebody else, uh, you know, at the, at the highest seat that's not Kevin McCarthy. There's also a leadership, con- uh, a contested leadership in the Senate uh, between uh, Rick Scott and Mitch McConnell. Again, this is a fractured GOP that doesn't quite know how to move forward because they are no longer in unison because there is kind of conservatism and Trumpism clashing against each other. Uh, while we have you, I also want to ask you about what is going on with NATO right now and the White House's response to what it seems like, you know, initially there was a lot of concern about this missile hitting Poland, and now it sounds like it was a Ukrainian missile that hit Poland. What's been going on with the White House response to this? Well, sure. Look, the White House, uh, via the president, who is overseas right now, meeting with G20 leaders about this uh, exact situation, it's kind of thrust itself uh, into the mix of the conversation over there. President Biden spoke last night and said that he does not believe that this was some kind of intentional fire out of uh, out of Russia to land into Poland, and ultimately believes that this was a Russian missile that was fired by the Ukrainian military that had some kind of um, issue with it that ultimately landed 
uh, in Poland because Ukrainian uh, military uses old uh, Russian equipment as a part of their artillery. So, you know, there is real concern here that was this going to be, uh, you know, Russia upping the ante here, potentially getting NATO involved, invoking Article 5, or do we have, you know, Article 4 here where NATO members are going to meet to try and discuss the threat? Ultimately, the White House is keeping an eye on this, but the investigation is still ongoing. The Pentagon, the State Department, and the White House all want to uh, stay kind of behind where that investigation is right now and not say something that could potentially raise the stakes when the situation is still incredibly fluid. Okay, so they're just going to kind of stay the course for the next little while? Well, for the next little while, uh, at least, Russia jumped out the door immediately and said that this was not uh, their fault. And Poland immediately said, well, this was something from Russia. And even Donald Trump last night when he was speaking made an off-the-cuff comment that, you know, this missile was probably fired from within Russia. So, I mean, there's a lot of conversation going on. But with the investigation still uh, underway in this very remote part of eastern Poland, you know, where where two people were killed as a result of this incident, uh, they need to get through that investigation because, again, this is a war that does not involve NATO, and NATO wants to be very sure uh, that you know if this needs to be escalated, that it is being done for the correct reasons, and that they are not the first ones to kind of put their foot over a line, uh, which is why this investigation is so key, not only for kind of regional stability, but global stability. All right. Reggie, thank you so much for your time. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now we are going to talk about your rights as a passenger. The reason why this has come back up again is because, you know, if you look on the Global News website, you'll see this story about how some travelers with the airline Sunwing are not happy with the latest actions that have gone on with the company. They want answers. They want money back. They said it, they had a nightmare trip full of delays and cancellations. This has been happening in more than one location. Uh, so let's talk more about what you're entitled to if you do get stranded. Joining us now is Gabor Lukash, who's the founder of AirPassengerRights.ca. Good morning, Gabor. Good morning. Well, thanks for being with us on this. It does seem like you probably never stop getting questions about this, do you? Because the situation doesn't seem to get better. That's correct. And it's very, very unfortunate. Our Facebook group is absolutely flooded. Uh, we are getting close to 990,000 members. Uh, and we, are not ha- we don't need, unfortunately, any membership drives to get more people. We are right now at 88,400 members, and it keeps increasing. And uh, we are essentially overwhelmed and often unable to answer all the questions that we get. Oh, boy. What are the most common questions that you're getting right now? Uh, Obviously, the recent events with uh, WestJet and uh, Sunwing have been a great concern. Our flights were canceled on a large scale with WestJet, uh, and passengers were not properly rebooked. Passengers were not properly compensated, and WestJet has the audacity to claim that uh, its own server room problem is somehow outside its control. That's, uh, that's, this is from the latest news. Uh, the typical problems that we are seeing is airlines 
just coming up with some excuse for not paying compensation. For example, claiming that crew shortage is somehow not their responsibility or claiming that their failure to arrange for proper staffing is um, a safety issue. Um, the other types of uh, issues is that when airlines cancel flights in advance, they don't rebook passengers in the way that they would have to do under the law. They don't offer them transportation on their own network within nine hours, if, even when that is available. Uh, and if such is not available, they don't attempt to rebook passengers on flights of other airlines, which is required in many cases by the law. Why do you think, Gabor, that airlines are still kind of flouting the rules like this? I mean, do they just feel like, well, we can get away with it, so we're going to? Yes, airlines flout the law because they can get away with it, because the federal government is not enforcing the law. I just yesterday uh, stumbled upon a latest uh, concern about this. Uh, I went to the Canadian Transportation Agency's website on their list of enforcement actions. And I found that uh, WestJet was fined $11,000, uh, which may sound a lot, uh, but actually it was for many, many violations of not paying compensation nor providing reasons within 30 days. They were fined $200 only for that breach. Now, let's just look at the APPR for a moment. The amount of compensation owed is between $400 and $1,000. So if an airline is fined less then actually how much the compensation is owed to passengers for not making that payment and not responding, well, it's just cheaper for them to pay the fine and not pay the passengers. That's so true, right? So why worry about what you have to pay the passengers? So do passengers, we don't have any recourse at this point? The recourse we have is going to small claims court, taking the airlines to small claims court. Theoretically, the Canadian Transportation Agency would be supposed to uh, handle complaints, but they're not doing their job. They have a backlog of about over 20,000 complaints, and they just send away passengers without resolving their uh, problems, and then they put down the case as resolved. So they have a practice confirmed to Parliament that any case where the passenger just gives up or goes away and the file is closed is reported to Parliament as resolved. Right. Okay. So that just feels like we're left right back where we started. What was the point then in bringing in all those rules and all those changes, Gabor, if nothing was going to actually improve as a result of that? Well, that's really the question that uh, Canadians should be asking their their members of parliament and and should demand that members of parliament uh, hold the government accountable for this. The rules themselves are very poorly worded and they're really a haven for um, uh, litigation and airline lawyers. But even in those cases where the l- rules are clear, the federal government's lack of enforcement is stunning. The level of interference that we have seen in the past from the government with the Canadian Transportation Agency is also stunning. The transport minister could issue policy directions to the Canadian Transportation Agency to start enforcing uh, the rules, but most importantly, Canada should be uh, adopting the European Union's gold standard for passenger protection because they are far more simple. One of the greatest problems with the current set of rules is that to deal with a $400 claim, sometimes you have to file a thousand pages of precedents, of evidence, of documents, and that becomes just unfeasible for society to handle. So these rules that we see here, they were 
written by the airlines for the airlines to effectively empty passengers' rights from practical meaning. The European rules, on the other hand, put a lot of burden of proof on the airlines. So it's not you, the passenger, who have to prove that uh, that a cancellation was, say, outside airlines' control, but rather the airline has to establish with evidence circumstances that were genuinely extraordinary and outside the normal operation of of uh, an airline. Right. And there are there are far less cases. Loopholes, far less. There are actually no significant loopholes in the European rules as they are written. They they assume that everything is within the airline's control. There is no safety loophole. They, the European uh, regulations, European course interpretation is clear that uh, if an air, aircraft breaks down, that's the airline's problem, and they have to pay compensation. They just need to maintain the aircraft better and have more spares. If otherwise, they have to pay passengers the compensation owed. Right. I know. And we, we know we've, I've know we've been talking to you about this for years and things don't seem to improve. So, Gabor, is there any basic advice that you can give us? What I've started doing is if I'm booking a flight, I try to book the first one in the morning because that way if I'm going to get booked and I assume I'm going to get changed or something, at least maybe it'll be later in the day. Well, I, I don't think there are some kind of magic tricks, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> So what, what I usually try to do is avoid Canadian Airlines altogether if you can do that at all. Obviously, if you fly within Canada, you cannot. Uh, document what is happening around you to the extent you can. Take photos, videos, audio. And uh, after the fact, take the airline to small claims court. Incur expenses first as needed. So if you need a meal, get it. If you need a hotel, get it. Worry about being reimbursed later because the whole system is built in a way that if you didn't incur the expenses, you may be having a harder time to realize some kind of damages or loss. Other than that, speak to your member of parliament. Explain to them that the Canadian Transportation Agency is not doing its job, is cozy with the airlines, and that a reform, a fundamental reform, and quite likely a federal inquiry into the Canadian Transportation Agency's operation would be much needed. All right, Gabor, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you very much for having me. That's Gabor Lukacs, who's the founder of airpassengerrights.ca. I mean, he's been talking about airlines for years, not living up to their obligations to passengers. And unfortunately, he still has way too much, essentially, ammunition and stories to discuss here. Once again, travelers having problems, whether it was WestJet and their technical problems or Sunwing customers this past weekend, or the past week getting stranded in both Calgary and Mexico. No shortage to this. If you've got a traffic nightmare you want to share with us in terms of flying, I, I am so shocked if any flight doesn't get somehow changed, altered, or whatever before you manage to leave these days. This is Mornings with Simi. A group of BC organizations has sent an open letter to the provincial government, and they say it is time to immediately reinstate masking in all public spaces. There is a press conference coming up this morning with Health Minister Adrian Dix and Dr. Bonnie Henry. That's at 11 o'clock. But we've heard already that it will not include a required mandate for masking, but probably a recommendation for that. But let's talk more about the concerns here. Joining us now is Brenda Hardy, a family physician and a member of Protect Our Province BC. Dr. Hardy, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Why did you decide to look, participate in this and put this letter forward? What were you hoping to achieve? Uh, mostly what we're hoping to achieve is to see uh, a turnaround in events that were, are really quite um, distressing right now, which is the overwhelm of our healthcare system, and in particular, overwhelm of the um, pediatric healthcare system, which seems to be the biggest problem this fall. Uh, what we're 
everyone, I guess, is noticing as well on top of that is the lack of access to uh, fever-reducing and pain-reducing medications for children. And it's really kind of a, like a perfect storm where um, parents with sick kids are not able to get their kids even relief at home. Then they're looking for support through health care, and that's overwhelmed. Emergency department wait times are extensive to the point at Children's Hospital, they're now canceling important surgeries. So we think rather than uh, reducing or not allowing health care for those folks who really desperately need it, the best thing would be to go upstream and try to prevent some of these problems so that we're not in such a dire uh, sort of crisis situation like we are right now. Okay, so what do you mean by go upstream? So upstream meaning preventing problems. So, you know, the old uh, announce of prevention is worth a pound of cure Uh, If we didn't have as many people sick right now with respiratory illnesses, then we wouldn't have as much overwhelm in our system. So things that we can do to reduce the spread of infectious diseases in the community, um, and number one right now that would make a a really huge impact would be wearing masks when we're indoors uh, in public spaces. So is that, do you think, for everybody? Like what about schools? Yeah, I think schools is a really interesting one. There's been a lot of Uh, a debate around that. And I think if we look at the science, at the studies that have been published over the last six to 12 months, we see that overwhelmingly schools do drive the spread of infectious diseases within a community. There was a really excellent article just published um, in the last month, I think it was, uh, out of uh, Massachusetts. And you can uh, read that in several places. Time uh, magazine has an excellent article explaining there was this natural experiment in Boston where they uh, removed the mask mandates gradually or or they were removed gradually across different communities. And so they were able to study what was the difference then if the rate of infection was the same across all, how did it change in each of these communities as their districts removed mask mandates at different times? And they found a dramatic increase in the spread of infection in the communities where masks were dropped in schools. A full 30% of the cases following a drop in mask mandates were uh, attributed to that. So we've got that and multiple other studies showing that schools are a major driver and that masking in schools makes a difference and helps to keep the whole community safe. I think the other piece out of that, maybe you're going to ask this question, maybe I'm preempting. People say, yeah, but what about the learning? You know, do masks impair learning? Um, and, you know, that's a, it's a great sort of thought. You know, it's a kind of a thought experiment. Well, maybe it does. So when we wonder about something like that, the next step is to get evidence, right? Find out, is that really true? And so far, the evidence overwhelmingly points that it's not true. In fact, the learning loss that happened in Boston was massive due to students being out of school, teachers being out of school, tens of thousands of hours of lost school time due to uh, infection. Uh, And um, in general, overall, masks will help with learning rather than harm learning, especially right now when the rates of infection in the community of COVID, RSV, influenza, all at the same time um, are really... uh, quite extraordinary. Okay, well, when you say quite extraordinary, like what are you seeing from your patients? What are the symptoms and are you getting a lot of questions about this? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think every family doctor, you know, goes through the, the winter season spending a lot of their time answering questions. You know, the big question folks have often is, do I need an antibiotic? Um, and also wondering if there's anything they can do to get better quicker. Um, and then often when folks have never had influenza or never had COVID, they're quite surprised by how ill they feel. The old, uh, I feel like I was hit by a train or hit by a truck or uh, out of commission for a week or two, even though they were previously healthy. Um, I think it's a bit of a wake-up call for folks because we hear colds and flus, you know, in the same sentence. And colds and flus are nothing alike. Uh, colds, sure, you're sick for two, three days, and you probably can carry on doing most of your things. Flus, not so much. People are often in bed, uh, miss time from work, miss time taking care of their family. Uh, and some people, if they have health issues or uh, are unfortunate enough to get a severe enough case, end up hospitalized. Nobody's hospitalized or rarely hospitalized for colds. So um, the two are very different. So we spend a lot of time educating folks around uh, what to expect. Yes, you will need to be in bed. Yes, you might miss a week or two of work. Yes, you're going to have a hard time taking care of your family. Uh, because of how ill you are, which is why prevention is important. So immunizations, yes, critically important that everyone gets their flu shot this year, has at least three doses of their COVID vaccine to get every dose that is offered to them. But we could do more. We could be stopping the spread by wearing masks. Okay. Is that what you tell your patients? Absolutely. Uh, I sent this out in an email blast to my patients. We have 9,000 patients at our clinic and we send education updates because I, I feel like there, there just isn't this easy access to this kind of important information publicly. So um, I and other family doctors and other medical directors of family practice clinics do the same thing. We educate our own patients as best we can by putting information on our website, sending out emails blasts to tell everybody um, how they can not only keep themselves sick, but help the whole community to be healthier. Right. Do you hope to hear more about this, like a stronger message today from the health minister and Dr. Henry? Oh, I always hold out hope and um but I'm, you know, I'm less and less optimistic. I mean, uh, today we, we already heard there won't be any big announcements. So I'm not really sure what they're doing, uh, to be honest with you. If they have nothing to say, maybe don't say it. Um, what I would really like to hear, though, if they're not going to make any change, what I'd really like to know is what is their policy framework that is going to make them make a different decision? So we've never heard this. They've never been transparent so they say we're watching, we're, we're keeping track, but what is the point, what is the tipping point? When would they enact a change? What is that place? So they must have it, right? If they're watching, what are they watching for? They must have a plan in place that says, at this point, we will do things differently. We would ask, we would, uh, ask people to wear masks indoors or, or whatever is right. their plan. We would in, you know, start to have regulated indoor air quality, you know, whatever was their plan. But what is the point? And honestly, I think that's the question I hope uh, journalists ask today because we don't know what that is. You know, how many children's surgeries would be canceled before you would implement masks? How long of a wait at the children's hospital would you tolerate before you would uh, it, uh, make something, do something different like requiring masks. You know, 12 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, lines out the door. Like how, 
How bad does it have to get? How many pediatric deaths are you willing to have before you will make a change? And we don't know the answer to these questions. And if, in fact, there is no policy, there is no framework, then stop telling us that there is this hidden framework. Just say, we're not going to do anything differently, so figure it out. I I just feel like that's my frustration at most of these uh, press conferences. Uh, It's hazy, it's vague, there's no transparency, I don't understand the policy framework, I don't understand what they're monitoring, and they've not told us what the tipping point is. Dr. Hardy, thank you so much for your time this morning. You're welcome. Appreciate that. Yeah, it's Dr. Brenda Hardy, family physician and member of Protect Our Province, BC. 11 o'clock this morning will be that press conference. And of course, we'll have complete coverage for you. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh boy, it's been a lot of back and forth when it comes to Surrey policing in the last 24 hours. You had the Surrey, the new Surrey City Council vote to keep the RCMP in the city by a vote of five to four. We had Brenda Locke on the show just almost exactly 24 hours ago where she was telling us that meant that the Surrey Police Service could no longer hire anybody and it put a stop to their work until they can get the RCMP back into position in the city. Well, that was her way of thinking on it because that is certainly not the way it unfolded for the rest of the day. We've also heard from the Surrey Police Service Chief Normal Pinsky on this and Mike Farnworth, the Public Safety Minister, backing him up. And this morning, the Police Chief Normal Lipinski was on uh, the Global Morning News. And here's what he had to say. I think what needs to happen here is council and the RCMP have to put in a report, as was indicated by the provincial government, and uh, justifying how they would do this. And uh, that's a big how. And until that time happens, uh, we continue with our plan. And uh, there's a couple of entities to this, which is important. Number one, if you look at the Police Act, uh, council does not have authority over the police board. Number two is Surrey needs police officers. I think it's widely reported that more police officers uh, are needed in Surrey And we all know as uh, police executives across the country that the more police officers you have, the safer the community is. All right. That is Norm Lipinski, the chief constable for the Surrey police, saying essentially that despite what the mayor thinks, despite what Surrey Council voted, they're still moving forward because there's a transition plan in place that has been approved by the provincial government. And that is what they answer to, not you know, the whims of council in the moment. There is no other transition plan. It really is an extraordinary situation. And I can't think of ever having seen something like this before. So we thought to help us out with that, joining us now is Dr. Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Good morning, Hamish. Good morning, Simi. Have you ever seen something like this before? Only metaphorically, when people talk about putting the genie back in the bottle. (laughs) <laughs> and that's that's what they're trying to do here. Um, and uh, you know, Brenda Locke campaigned on transition back to the RCMP. Uh, she 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 won the, the, the mayor's position and, and her party got a majority on council. But as we heard in, in your opening there, uh, they now have to put in a new transition uh, plan to the province. The province received a transition plan to move from RCMP to a Surrey police force. They approved that. Uh, and that plan is unfolding. And if it's the new mayor and council wants to reverse that. They have to come up with a new plan to retransition back to the RCMP and importantly explain how they're going to finance that. Um, there will be costs entailed uh, when you have to lay people off, provide them severance, cancel other contracts for services that the police force, uh, the new police force has contracted for. 
Um, and Mark Farnworth was very, very clear that the city of Surrey will be on the hook for those costs, not the province. You know, what's really remarkable about this, Hamish, is that politicians don't seem to learn any lessons, right? So we had Doug McCallum in 2018 talking about, well, how boots on the ground will be completely transitioned by 2021. And none of that happened. We know that it was way more complicated and it took way more time. And yet you had another candidate running saying, we're just going to turn it back right away. Think not understanding that, did we not just see this is way more complicated than we realized? Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm amazed. Um, and the other candidates who are running for mayor, were, uh, besides Doug McCallum, of course, who wanted to push forth, forward with the transition, the other candidates were much more circumspect about what they were going to do, uh, further investigation, see if it would be feasible, maybe a referendum, something like that. Uh, but Brenda Locke um, was, you know, give her credit, she was at least clear about what she wanted to do. Um, but uh, she may not have anticipated how complicated it was going to be or let on. Uh, to the public how complicated it would be. Right. So essentially, the people who were trying to be realistic about it didn't get as much traction as somebody who just out and out said something that perhaps some people wanted to hear. That's right. And, you know, there were two very clear positions between Brenda Locke and Doug McCallum, and people like clarity. And uh, people vote for things. They want to get things done. Uh, They don't really care about the the intricacies and the details of how it gets done. You said you would do it. Now do it. Um, Now Brenda Locke is going to have to, you know, she's, as I say, she campaigned on it. Um, She will, she will work on it, but um, it may be financially impossible. Right. That's what I was wondering. So, Hamish, you've been around this for a long time. What's going to happen? And like, you know, you know what people are like when they get the bill, when they look at their property taxes and they have to pay the estimated in excess of $180 million it's going to cost to dismantle this and go back to the RCMP. Yeah. And it may not be the problem with the city, of course, is they can't borrow money to do that. They have to run a balanced budget. So unless they can amortize that cost over a period of time, they just may not be capable of doing it financially within a fiscal year uh, and they can't run a deficit to do it. Uh, So the financing here is going to be very complicated and, and possibly impossible. Uh, what should the province do in a situation like this? Like, it seems like their hands are a bit tied here. What kind of role does the province have in all of this? Well, they've got final say. We saw that uh, with the the transition to the new police force. Doug McCallum campaigned on it, but he didn't actually have, the city didn't actually have the authority to do it. So they put forward a plan. Um, The province may have had reservations about it, but the plan was, was met their criteria. It was clear. Uh, And of course, the, 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 Council had campaigned on it, so they approved it, um, and and they've got the same role here. I don't think that it's it's the province's decision to impose their will on the city. Um, if that's what the council wants, if that's what the voters of Surrey, citizens of Surrey want, then they can have it as long as they can explain how they can do it. Well, that's tricky, right? That's where it gets tricky, I guess, for both of the political parties in BC, for the BC Liberals or whatever they're going to be called after nine o'clock this morning, and the <laughs> and the NDP is that they want seats in Surrey. So what do you do? This is a very politically tricky situation. It is, and and you know, in fairness to the to two parties as well. Um, the people of Surrey are very divided on that. We, we saw that in the election. One candidate campaigned to, to uh, keep the new police force. He got about a quarter of the vote. Brenda Locke campaigned against it. She got just over a quarter of the vote. And the other candidates got combined about 30 percent of the vote. So there were three positions on offer. And, and the people of Surrey divided almost evenly three ways. Um, so I think the other party, the Provincial parties will just take a relatively neutral position on this. Whatever you want, we will be happy to facilitate. Okay, so is it wise then at this point 
Hamish, for the provincial government to say, listen, we can't let this happen again. Like, we need to put some rules in place of whether if a municipality wants to go down this route. Well, maybe. Um, and I do think we have a larger question around policing, particularly in the lower mainland, maybe in the, in the capital region as well, where we have um, all of these adjacent municipalities um, with separate police forces. And, and maybe we need a broader conversation about that. Um, I grew up in Toronto. At the time, there were five cities that made up metropolitan Toronto, but there was one police force, um, the Metro Police Force. And and perhaps that's a conversation the province needs to have um, because we've got jurisdictional issues and, and, and we have to get around it some ways. You know, we do it with the integrated homicide unit, for example, um, or a murder may happen in one jurisdiction, but the, the people who committed it may well be anywhere in the lower mainland. Um, and so it's perhaps necessary to have a broader conversation about policing, as I say, in the capital region and the lower mainland. So is that one way out of this, I guess, is to say, all right, time for us to have that conversation. We've talked about it for a long time, about a Metro Vancouver police force. It may be. Um, that, of course, is a very big undertaking. Um, and and uh, police forces and their unions and city councils, um, they all have be all very territorial about that. Um, so uh, I think provincial government might be reluctant to have that conversation, um, but I think it's a conversation that we at least have to, to start and explore the options and, and see if it's something that uh, could be feasible and worth doing. Hmm, interesting. All right, Dr. Telford, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, Cindy. Dr. Hamish Telford is an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Is it time then to stop these kinds of you know, fights about a police force here, going back to this or forward with their own police force. It's a time to just say, well, maybe we should all have the same police force and it should be a local one. Maybe we should just have a Metro Vancouver police force. Would you support that idea? Do you like that idea? Simi at cknw.com or you can call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899.